school class, the one that I teach, uh, Romans chapter 12, we see how Paul urges the church, urges the people who are saved and called by God to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And so what a wonderful reminder that we are his offering, that everything that we do is meant to be for him and for his glory. So, uh, for him and for his glory, this morning, open up your Bible with me to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we've been studying 1 Timothy together, we've entitled the series, House Rules. We've already gone over a couple of rules, but we've also looked at uh, the church's ministry and what God has called it to do, um, and then also the church's message. What uh, God is calling the church to say and proclaim. Today we're going to talk about the church's management. And whenever I, I speak in, the word, uh, in the, those terms, some of you might, mm, what about that? Well, here's the thing. In order for the church to exist, in order for the church to accomplish anything, there has to be somebody in charge, right? Will you agree with that? Somebody's got to be in charge of that. Somebody has to be doing the work of the ministry, and other people have to equip those people and lead those people. And this is what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we look at the qualifications of the overseers and the deacons. And then Paul is going to make a statement about who really is in charge. And so the first rule that we've seen as we've been going through the study is, uh, number one, to keep the main thing The main thing. What's the main thing? Well, the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, died on a sinner's cross for you and me for for our sins, was buried, and then was raised again on the third day, and now he's alive. And so the first rule that we've already seen, rule number one, is to keep the main thing the main thing. Rule number two that we saw last time It's talking about the the membership of the church and who we ought to be and what we ought to be doing. And he reminds us that we all should be prayer warriors. And when we come together as a body, we should always be praying anywhere and everywhere. And so rule number two is, this house shall be called a house of prayer. I hope that you've been praying this week and hopefully something that we said last week stirred within you the need and the desire to pray, to pray for your church to pray for your nation, to pray for your community, pray for your family, pray for the things that we talked about last week. Well, the, re, the, the week three rule, number three, follow your leaders. Follow your leaders. So we're going to look at the church's leaders here for just a few minutes, and we're going to talk about that. Why don't you stand with me, and we'll just read the first couple of verses here about the overseers. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Well, let's stop there and pray. We'll pick up the rest of the chapter as we go. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for your word. And I pray now, Lord, as uh, the messenger and the under-shepherd of your church, Lord, that you would give me words to share that will bring life, edify, and give you glory for all that you've done for us, Lord. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ that makes a way for us to enter into life eternal. And Father, we pray that we would magnify Christ today in all that we say and do. And it's in His holy name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. 
So I want us to think about it this way in these terms, and I'm going to go ahead and give you my outline, and then we'll work through the outline together. Two offices, one authority. Two offices, one authority, okay? So that's the basic outline, and we're going to go from here, and we're going to talk about the first office of the church, which is the office of pastor. Um, And as we think about that, we have a, a few words that go along with this word pastor in the New Testament. And all of these titles are interchangeable. Elder, bishop, under shepherd. Those titles are interchangeable. So whether you're looking down or you see the word overseer, which is the word that we have here, which is episkopos, that's the one that's in green. That word literally means watching over. You got epi, which means over or upon. And then you got scopos, And so anybody got a deer rifle? You got a deer rifle, guys? All right, on on your rifle, what do you have attached to the top top rail, the main rail? What do you got up there? A scope, okay? All right, so what is that? It's something that you look through, right? So the word episkopos means to look over. Now, we have a few denominations of Christianity that have name their denomination based on their polity and how they organize and manage and rule over the church. So you have the Episcopal Church, all right, and part of their polity is that the the pastor or the bishop is in charge, okay? And then uh, pres, uh, presbutes, which is uh, the second word there in, in blue, that, that word means elder. It means someone who is watching over, but it also means uh, someone who is, it it, it signifies someone who has experience and wisdom as well. And then you have that third word, the uh, pimin, which is the word for shepherd or pastor. That's the person that guides the flock, right? That's the one that's got the, the crooked staff and he reaches down and he lifts up the the sheep that has fallen, and he picks it back up out of the ravine, and he's the one that cares for and feeds and, and guides and leads to still waters and all of those things. And so those are the three words that describe the role of the pastor. The, that one office of pastor are described by these three, three words, and they're used interchangeably. In Titus 1.7, Paul calls the overseer God's steward. And he says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above Reproach, And then when you look here in chapter 3 again, in verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. We look at that word aspire, you think, well, what does that mean? And, and what it really means is, is if someone, if anyone is working toward that, if they've put that goal before them, It doesn't mean if anyone in the church just decides to become a pastor, that they can be a pastor. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if God calls a man to that job, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of preparation and a lot of prayer and a lot of dependence on God. I I, I know very clearly whenever God called me to be a pastor. I was serving at Briar Hill Baptist Church. I was a the worship leader for the youth did what Cody does, except for not nearly as good, play the guitar and sing. And, and all. we tried, but man, we were never really that great, but we tried to keep it together. But hey, it was amazing because we started out with just a handful of teenagers. And by the time uh, I, I left from there and went on, we were running 50, 50 kids on a Wednesday night, which was awesome. And God was blessing that. And it was in the, in the middle of all of that blessing, and then God had done some amazing things in my family, with my wife, and we had a new baby, and it was just amazing what God was doing. And then I just felt this sense of there's got to be more than this. What is, what is it, this stirring within me? So I sat down with, at that point, he was the youth minister of the church, Um, His name is Jason Lee. I sat down with Jason. I said, Jason, listen, man, I know everything's going great. This is wonderful. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. But I just feel like something's missing. I don't know what it is. You need to help me. I'm having a hard time. I'm struggling right now. 
And he said, well, what, what do you think it is? And I said, I, I don't know. You need to tell me because I know we're doing a good job. Look at all the youth that are here and, and everything is going great. But I just feel like I'm missing something. And he said, you know what it sounds like? It sounds to me like God's calling you to ministry. Yeah. I said, well, well, what do I need to do? And he said, well, you need to go talk to our pastor about that. And I said, I said okay, well, let's do that. So he set up. Uh, an appointment for me to go see the pastor. So I s- sat down in the pastor's office, told the pastor what was going on in my life. He said, God's definitely calling you to ministry. <laughs> I said, well, what do I need to do? And he said, well, you need to go get an education. And back then, I thought, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I need an education. What he was saying is, you dumb and you need to, ner- you need to learn some stuff. Because you're not ready. (laughs) He's calling you, but you're not there yet. You need need to go do some work. So I had to go do some studying. And I I enrolled in Mississippi College and started working on my Bible, uh, my Christian studies degree. Got my bachelor's there and then went on to seminary. And I still feel like the work is never done. It takes work. And the, the conditioning, the training, the work, the study, it never ceases for the pastor. You can't stop learning because you're the one that's called. To, move, to go forward and lead the church. And so Paul says, if anyone aspires, and that word literally means he's working toward it. If he set that goal in front of him, God's called him to it. Listen, it is a calling. If anyone is called to do that, if anyone aspires to that, he desires a noble task. It is a noble task. It's important. And so we think about that calling an overseer or a pastor, the word overseer here that he's using, it says, it speaks of a personal holiness, that calling. And if we look at all those qualifications, this person is called to be holy. When we talk about holy, it doesn't mean righteous, self-righteous, more holier than thou. That's not, the, that's not what it means by that. Listen, I'm a sinner, okay? And if you, think, if you think anything otherwise, let me go ahead and disillusion you of that because I don't want you to set me up on a pedestal and think that I'm any better than any of you because that's not the case. I'm called by God Amen. to personal holiness, to work toward that, to strive toward that. And when we think about holiness, it simply means being set apart for a particular use, a particular task. And what that means is I don't have any business doing anything else than this. This is the most important thing that God has called me to do. And anything else, I can't, I can't go be a manager at Home Depot. God didn't allow me to do that. Even though I'd be great at it and I could get that place ship shape in no time if they would let me do it. Go in there and I can't find anything I need. But anyway... Uh, I remember when I went to seminary, they, they told us, they said, and they set us down. I mean, we're here at orientation, and we're getting to see the campus and everything, and they're telling us all about this stuff. And we go into the chapel, and then we sit down in the chapel, and they preach to us, and they say, listen, if God would allow you to do anything else than this, you need to go do that. Don't waste your time here, because you're just going to quit anyway, so go on and go do something else. Ministry's tough. It's not easy. So it's a call to personal holiness, but it's also a call to pastoral ministry. And that is a hard calling. In fact, I have a pastor friend that I went to seminary with, and uh, he also pastored um, my home church for a little while. Uh, Actually, uh, I may have gone to Mississippi College with him. But he did a study on this, and he, he, uh, he said these are the reasons why pastors have considered quitting full time ministry. And I, I hear some wild statistics about the thousands of pastors that leave the ministry every year. And it's, it's startling. Um, but he said, are there are any of the following reasons why you have considered quitting full-time ministry in this survey, in this Barna poll? And down at the very bottom of the list are things like, I don't feel respected. Ministry is not what I thought it would be. I've experienced a personal crisis of faith. In other words, the pastors are prepared for ministry that are considering quitting. They, they know what ministry is before they get into it. But then you go on, on up the list and you look at the top reasons 
The number one reason pastors are considering leaving the ministry is because of the immense stress of the job. That it's just hard. It's not easy. And so the number one thing that you can do for your pastors, and I say that plural because we have four pastors on staff here at the church. The number one thing that you can do for us is pray for us. The second thing you can do is be nice to us. <laughs> we need that. <laughs> but, but praying for us is so important. Here's what I, here's what I, want, I want you to do, okay? I'm going to ask for our pastors to stand. Our pastors, if you'll go ahead and stand with me. And if we got some of the retired guys in here, you can stand too because we want to honor you as well. Let's see. Where's Brother Chris is back there. We got Brother Cody here. We got Brother Drew there. These are our pastors. And what I want you to do for just a moment, I want you to bow your heads with me and pray for them. Okay? I'm going to pray for them and lift them up. Heavenly Father, we know the immense pressure that is on our pastors. God, we pray that you would give them a sense of understanding and a sense of calling to this ministry, to know that it's a noble task. This is not something for the faint of heart. But Lord, you are our pastor. You are our chief shepherd. We're the under shepherds. And so Lord, help us to be led by you. And we know that if we're following you, Lord, you'll give us everything that we need. You'll supply every need by your riches and glory. So, Lord, don't allow our pastors to get discouraged. Don't allow any root of bitterness to grow up in this church. Put a hedge around them. Protect them. Protect their marriages, their families. And God, show them how much you love them. Let them feel a sense of that love and know it and understand it every day. Lord, build your church up through them and through their work. We love you and we bless you for giving us them in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Folks, we are so thankful for what you guys do. I just want you to know that from the bottom of my heart. And, and so we think about these overseers, these pastors, and we know that they have a calling to personal holiness, a calling to pastoral ministry. They have a calling to preach God's Word. Now, Brother Chris preaches from the pulpit. Brother Cody sings from the pulpit. Brother Drew has yet to preach yet to us, but he's going to, and he does. And he preaches to the youth too, and he's been preaching to them and the college students and those things. So, he, Brother, the, the thing about that is they're called, and that's the one different qualification when we look at this, this list in just a moment that you're going to see is, is that overseers should be able to teach. So that's, that's one qualification that sets them apart from any other. Because all of these other qualifications could fit any member of the church, any deacon, anybody, any deaconess. Wait, we don't have those. Okay, it would fit any person in the church. But except for that one qualification, able to teach. And specifically what Paul is referring to is preaching and teaching God's Word. That he must be able to do that. So an overseer's calling. But let's look at an overseer's character again. And look at the verse 2. Look at the qualifications there. And we have about 14 of them. So I'm going to go really fast. You've got to listen fast. Let's go quickly, okay? He must be above reproach. That doesn't mean that he's perfect. It means that there's no unconfessed sin. That no one can bring any legitimate accusation against the man. Against him because he's already confessed it. He's already dealt with it. And he's moving on. Move on. He keeps a very, very, very short list of sins. And if he finds that he has sin in his life, he brings it to the Lord right then and there and confesses. That's what it means to be above reproach. It means nobody's going to bring an, an accusation against this man. The husband of one wife. Now, we need to deal with this for just a moment, okay? 
Because that husband of one wife is a very special word in the Greek language. It's not found anywhere else really, but right here where Paul uses it. However, there is another place on the qualifications later on for widows who will be on the list that she will be a one-man woman. Here, this is a one-woman man is literally what the Greek says. The, uh, a one-woman man. So what does that mean? What does Paul mean whenever he says that? Well, there's a couple of optional interpretations, and Paul could be speaking broadly about the issue of marital faithfulness, basically saying that he's a one-woman kind of man. He's not going to go tramping around. He's not going to be the kind of man that goes from this woman to that woman to that woman. That he loves one woman faithfully. And if he's not married, then he is abstinent. Okay, so that's what that could speak to. Then another option is that he specifically prohibits polygamy, but that was an, it was an issue in the day, but it wasn't a prominent issue. It wasn't an issue that Paul really needed to be dealing with. Another option would be that Paul is absolutely requiring that overseers and deacons be men who have never had more than one wife. We know that's not true because Paul talks about marriage and divorce, and he gives exceptions for divorce, and there's basically three biblical exceptions for divorce. And we think about that, it's, it's adultery, abuse, or abandonment. When you think about those three biblical causes for divorce, in every one of those three, the marriage covenant has already been broken by the other spouse. And so that person is free. I've known men that were deployed. They they got married and then they were deployed. And while they were deployed, their wife cheated on them. They came back and had to get a divorce because she had already left him. I've known men like that. Paul's not saying that that person is disqualified from pastoral ministry. And later on, from deacon ministry. Paul's not saying that. In fact, if Paul were saying that he wanted to say that not a divorced man, there is a perfectly good Greek word that Paul could have used and would have used because Paul is a master of the Greek language. He would have used that word and he would have said if he was divorced, he couldn't be a pastor if he wanted it to be that way. But he didn't say that. Now somehow, in Baptist life, over the history of these maybe 150 years, we've begun to interpret this, this language this way, that divorce is the only unpardonable sin for the pastor. But it's not true. Okay? So, uh, the fourth interpretation could be that Paul requires marriage for overseers and deacons. to say, he must be the husband of one wife or one woman man. And Paul's saying, well, he's got to be married. But we know that that's not true. Why do we know that's true? Because Paul was never married. Okay, so we know that that's not true. That Paul's not saying that, she, that he has to be married. Okay, so of those four interpretations, we've got a, got a screen, a slide up there. with only, The first interpretation is the obvious answer. It's the obvious interpretation, which is that Paul speaks broadly about the issue of marital faithfulness. Okay. So that's the only one that we're going to take that much time on. So get ready. Here we're going to go to the rest of them. Sober-minded, meaning he's got a clear head. Okay, uh, Sometimes I feel like I don't quite have a clear enough head because I'm trying to cram too much in there. But it, I do know the things that I know. And I know this, that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And I am clear-headed and sober-minded about that one thing. And that's the most important thing. Self-control, meaning he just doesn't go off the rails all the time, but he has exercised self-control by the fruit of the Spirit. Respectable, hospitable. Now, I think about uh, hospitality for just a moment when I think about that word. And literally what the word means is entertaining strangers. Being willing to entertain strangers. And the pastor, all of, you should, all of us should be doing that, but the pastor's, should be setting this example for you. That when you see me or you see Cody or Drew or Chris welcoming someone, that 
that, that ought to be an example for you. Even though you don't know this person, even though you have no idea whether they're going to take advantage of you or not, what their background is, where they came from, what their socioeconomic status is, what their ethnicity is, whoever they are, you're going to love them and welcome them. That's what hospitality is about. And the pastors should set that example in the church. And then the congregation should follow that example. Paul even warned us. He said, for many of us have entertained angels unaware. So you never know who that person is. You never know what they've been through. So we love them all. It doesn't matter who they are. And, and folks, this isn't just for when we're at church either. You don't put on your hospitality when you come to church. You should live a life of hospitality wherever you are. And then it should be clearly evidenced when we come together as a body. That we are a church who loves not only one another, but we love the alien and the stranger as well. Hospitality, able to teach. This is the single qualification that is different here for the pastor than anywhere else. It's, it's for the pastor here. Over in uh, Titus, Paul talks about how, Titus chapter 1 talks about how he should be able to teach and how she, he should be able to clearly define the Scripture. And, and he says uh, he should be above reproach, a husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And then verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, I'm going to tell you what, of all the qualifications of a pastor, I love preaching the most. I love teaching the most. That is my my favorite thing to do. But I don't care for rebuking people who don't live by the truth. That's not fun. (laughs) But it's my job. If you come in and you teach something or preach something that's not according to the Word of God, you're going to hear Pastor Josh say, that's not what the Bible teaches that's not what we say. We're not going to do that. I've had, I've had to mention it to music pastors, uh, not Cody. And, uh, but I've had to mention it. Before. We can't sing that in this church. I, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but there's a song that used to be out that we, we've sung before here in this church way back. We don't sing it anymore. And it says... Like a rose, you took the fall and thought of me above all. And at first I think, well, that's a pretty song. But here's the problem with that. The main line of the song is theologically in error. So here, here's a pastor, and I've got to come in and i got to say, listen, I'm sorry, but you know, we sang this. We sang this song, but... That's not what the Bible says. So we can't sing it anymore. And I take the heat for it. But here's the thing. I don't have to worry about that. Because it's not me. It's what the Word says. Listen, every, every qualification that, that is listed here for the, the pastor is really so that when you see the pastor, you don't look at the pastor. But when you see the pastor, you see the Word of God oozing through him. And that's my desire more than anything else. I don't want you to look at me. I'm not a whole lot to look at. I look at myself in the mirror and I go, oh, I can't believe, why would God make you a pastor? you got to stand up in front of everybody. But here's the thing. I don't have to worry about that because... If I'm preaching and teaching the Word, you get what you need. And that's what's most important. And so if we continue to look at the qualifications, not a drunkard, why not? Because the the Word literally means not associated with alcohol at all. So 
I stay away from alcohol. I won't go, if you're going to have a party and there's going to be drinking there, I won't say a whole lot about it, but I'll stay away from it. Amen. And that's, that's what I'm called to do. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Now, obviously, these were issues that were in the church at Ephesus. And we've already talked about how Paul tells the men, stop quarreling and start praying. And that was important then. And we said the same thing can happen with women. But, but Paul singled out the men and told them to stop quarreling with each other and start praying for each other. And then not a lover of money, that's going to come up later in chapter 6 where he talks about the rich and what they should do with their money and how money is fleeting and it's dumb to go after money and all of those things because they're going to go away. But instead, we should go after heavenly treasures. And the pastor can't be a lover of money. He can't be motivated by gain. And I'm thankful that this church takes very good care of my financial needs. I'm so thankful for that. Because that hasn't always been the case for me and my family. But this church takes care. You take care of your pastors. And I'm thankful for that. And I pray that God will always give us the means to do so. But even if He doesn't, I'll still be right here preaching God's Word. Because it's not about the money. It's about the calling. He must manage his own household well with dignity, keeping his children submissive. And I think uh, if there's any area right there where I feel the heat is right there. <clears throat> because you, you know my children. <laughs> and, and Abigail has this little phrase that she likes to use. And she learned this very early on. In fact, I think it's the the first sentence that she ever made completely, and Allison might be able to correct me, but it's, I said no. That's what she says. I said no. And I have to say to her, no, I said yes. And you're going, you know. And so I work, I work at this one. I work at number 12 because I know that, that that's, a, that's my primary calling even before my calling to pastoral ministry, my most important, most basic calling is to be a husband and a father to my kids. And if I fail at that, I'm not qualified to be a manager of God's house. If I can't manage my own household, so he goes on to say, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? If you can't get it right at home, you're never going to get it. Ian Bounds used to say, the measure of a man's public worth for God is his private personal communion with Him. So whatever I am in private, I'll never rise higher than the level of whatever I am in private in public. And so I have to make sure that that's first. And then verse, thir- uh, verse uh, 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So there's got to be some time and training. Listen, here's the thing. No one is ready for pastoral ministry the day that they come out of that baptistry. It's just, they're not ready for it. And, and it takes time and training. And it takes years of walking with the Lord and growing in the faith. Before a person is ready to be a pastor. And here's the thing, if you bestow that on someone, you look at that person, oh, he's so gifted, oh, he's so talented. Listen to how eloquent he is. Man, he looks good in that pulpit, and he's got, he can wear the skinny jeans, and he can, he's got the spiked hair and the tattoos, and every time he, it just fits the bill of a modern day pastor. And man, we got to get him. He needs to be preaching tomorrow. Well, then what's going to happen to that guy? Paul warns. And says, well, he's going to get puffed up. So he doesn't have a foundation. And all we've done is we just puffed him up. We haven't built him up in the Lord. We've puffed him up. And now something's going to happen. What, what happens to somebody that gets puffed up? Somebody comes with a thorn or a needle and lets all air out. And they get deflated. And that's what's going to happen to this guy. If you prop him up in the pulpit, you put him up there... 
he's going to get deflated real quickly. And, and listen to what it says. This is what happened to the devil. The devil got puffed up. The devil was very, very gifted. His name was Lucifer, which means angel of light. He was an angel of light. And, and, and some theologians tell us that the devil was the minister of worship in heaven. He was the angel that, that led worship in heaven. And he got, he got on that platform and he got to looking at himself and he said, I look pretty good up here. And his whole job was to say, God looks good. But he got to looking at himself and he got puffed up. And guess what? He got thrown down too. And then moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. When you think about that, you think about all the pastors with their yachts and their private jets and embezzling money from the church and the televangelists. And what have they all done? They've brought disgrace upon the, at, the office of pastoral ministry. And so this is why you must pray for pastors. Most, Billy Graham, I have this in my office. The most important characteristic of any pastor should be a heart for God, a deep desire to live for Christ and to see others come to know Him and serve Him. Well, let's look at deacons real briefly. I'm just going to summarize verses 8 through 13. First, we see a deacon's conduct in verse 8. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. This is their outer behavior. And then you see a deacon's conscience. He isn't required to teach, but then you look at verse 9. It says, He must hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. When you think about deacons, they are, they are not the preachers and the teachers necessarily. They can, but they're not necessarily that role in the church. They are the servant leaders of the church. They're called to serve. And that way, that word deacon there, that's what that word literally means. It means servant or servant leader. And you look in the book of Acts, these same guys were told to wait tables. Acts 6 the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. And this was because there was an issue going on in the church and some of the widows were being overlooked. And, he, and they said to them, it is not, they said to the whole church, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve the tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you. And by the way, we're about to have deacon elections. And so this is an important passage for this moment in our church, this time in our church. We'll be thinking about the deacons that we need. We need at least three or four more deacons than we have right now currently serving. And so as we think about that, they elected these men. They, they, they selected them. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So what were they in the book of Acts? They were table waiters. Let me tell you something awesome that I had the privilege of doing this week. I had the privilege of going over to Olive Baptist Church for this conference that was set up for our pastors. And all of our pastors were there except for Brother Chris. We're going to have to treat him later. Um, But basically what happened was the deacons of Olive Baptist Church served prime rib, green beans, and potatoes and whatever drinks that we wanted, uh, non-alcoholic drinks, uh, water, tea, the deacons put on gloves and aprons and whatever and served us. That was awesome. It was a wonderful... I just I felt so loved uh, in that moment. I told those deacons, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for this. This is great. I told the pastor, Dr. Trailer. Thank you so much for putting this on for us. That it was wonderful. When I think about servant leaders, they have to have a good character. So we see their conduct, their conscience, their character. And this is talking about the inner person. When you talk about their clear conscience, that's the, that they're not preachers and teachers, but they know the truth. And then verse 10, let them be tested then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Once again, that doesn't mean perfect. That means above reproach. That means no one's going to bring an accusation against these guys. 
And so then it goes on to talk about their wives in verse 11. And some of the deacons are nudging now, but that's okay. Listen, wives, to this. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And those same qualifications can apply to an overseer's wife as well, pastor's wife. Let deacons be the husband of one wife. Already talked about that. That's the same word as earlier. The one woman man managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons, so now we're going to talk about their commendation, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When you think about that, a good standing for themselves means that these men set the example of Christian character and service in the church. They're servant leaders. They serve you. They serve our widows. I don't know if you realize this or not, but there's some of them walking around right now just to make sure that we're secure here in this building. There's others of them over there at the PLC making sure that our kids are safe over there uh, and in the FLC. And so they're serving you right now. They took up the offering for you this morning. They call on people. They visit people. They do all of these things. They take care of us. They're servant leaders. So you have these two offices and both of them, Paul says it's a noble task for a pastor. And then he goes on to say that that's good standing is that the congregation loves them and prays for them and supports them. And then it says they'll, they'll have a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Hey, don't you feel like you're the one who is blessed every time you bring a blessing to someone else? Is that true? Yeah, I do. Every time I bless you, or I serve you, or I do something, I feel like I'm the one who is blessed to be able to do that. I go to visit people in the hospital, I go to visit people in their homes, and I, and I pray with them, I encourage them, and all of those things. And, and every time, it never fails. I walk out of that room or out of that house and get in my truck, and then I feel overwhelmed. And I get to say, thank you, God, that I get to be a pastor. Thank you, God, that I get to serve the church. Thank you, God, that you let me be a servant. Thank you, God, that you love me enough that you call me your servant. And I always feel good about that. And Paul says that's the way deacons ought to feel for what they do. And, and congregation, listen to me. It's your job to help the deacons feel that way. Now, I'm going to take a moment just to do this real quickly. If you're one of the deacons... at Myrtle Grove Baptist Church, you've ever served as a deacon at Myrtle Grove Baptist Church, would you stand up? Just go ahead and stand. I know I hear creaking and popping and all that. That's okay. (laughs) Moans and groans. Y'all just give them a hand for what they do. We love you guys. Have a great body of deacons. Best deacons I've ever had the privilege of serving with right here at Myrtle Grove Baptist Church. But here's the last thing I want to share with you this morning. Two offices. Pastor and the deacon. I know people want to create a third office for elder or whatever. Not not the way it works. Those words are used interchangeably for pastor. Pastor, elder, bishop, shepherd, and then deacon. But here's the last point though. It's one authority. One authority over the church. Pastors and deacons have been given responsibility, but Jesus Christ has been given all authority. All authority. The the only reason I can tell you anything about how you ought to live or what you ought to do is because it's revealed here in Scripture and I'm reading the same thing you are. And I can say, here's what it says for both of us. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life and all those things. I'm here to tell you what God's Word has to say for you. And God's Word revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is our authority. He's the only authority for us. 
Not, not anything else. And it's not your opinion, not my opinion, not what some ministry manual says. It's his authority. Look, I, I can't believe what the bulletin says this morning. I didn't plan this. Lifeway did this. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So when we say follow your leaders, we're talking namely about our one true leader. And that is Jesus Christ. Peter tells, Peter tells the preachers, listen, don't, don't uh, exercise oversight under compulsion, don't, don't be a compulsive pastor. <laughs> he says, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And then he says this, he reminds them, just as Paul reminds us, and Paul reminds Timothy, that we will be held accountable for what we do. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When the chief shepherd appears. Who's the chief shepherd? Who is the chief pastor? It's Jesus Christ. And so verses 14 and following, this is the, the core of the book of 1 Timothy. And this tells us why he wrote the book. He says, I hope to come to you soon. Hope to come to you soon. So he's reminding Timothy, I'm going to come and check in on you. Not in a bad way, because Timothy loved Paul, and Paul loved Timothy. But Paul just reminds him, I'm coming soon. Which reminds us of what Jesus said in the book of Revelation. I'm coming soon. I'm coming to my church. And it goes on and says this, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I wrote a letter to tell you how to behave. Listen, in other words, when Paul gets there, Timothy will not have an excuse for a church that is out of order. He's going to show up and he's going to say, did you do what I said to do in my letter? And listen, that's the same exact thing that God is going to say when on the day that Jesus Christ returns. He's going to look at the church and he's going to say, did you do what I told you to do? You've been doing it or not? Have you been faithful or not? Are you obeying or not? He is the one sole authority over the church. He is the head of the church. Colossians 1 and verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so then you hear what Paul says, how to behave in the household of God. In the household of God. This is God's house. Not the building, but the people. You are God's house. It belongs to Him which is the church of the living God. He's alive, he's well, he's on the throne, and he's coming back very soon. Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. May I ask you not to do something? May I ask you to never put your pastors up on a pedestal? I want to say that humbly and clearly because I I feel blessed by you and loved by you. And I know all of our pastors feel the same way here. And I hope all our deacons feel the same way here. But listen, they're all men. They're all prone to the same kinds of failings. If you put us up on a pedestal, we might tip off. But if you love us and you build us up, and listen, nothing's going to shake that foundation at all. I don't deserve what I get to do. It's because of what Jesus has done and His grace. That's the only reason I'm able to stand and preach. That's it. I'm just a turtle on a fence post. But the view sure is nice from here. And here's the thing. It's all about Him and what He has to say in His Word. And the reason that He's called me to do what I do and the reason that He's called deacons to support what I do and what we all do is for the sake of the Gospel. So Paul, just he once again, he, just, he drifts away, begins looking at the cross... And he, and he goes off into this hymn, and this is what it says. He was manifested in the flesh, 
Listen, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and listen to this hymn. This is the gospel, okay? This is true for the sinner and the saint. This is, if you're saved, this is the reason why you're saved. If you're not saved, this is what you need to hear in order to be saved. So with your head bowed, your eyes closed, I want you to hear the words of the hymn. It says, He was manifested in the flesh. He he came to this earth. He was born as a baby. He lived as a man. And then He died on a cross. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit descended upon Jesus on the day of His baptism. He was seen by angels. The angels, listen, angels worshipped Him and gave God glory for Him. It was proclaimed among the nations. Paul was a sinner. And Paul said, I was blind, but now I see. Paul talked about that. He couldn't help but be motivated to go and share the good news of Jesus. Believed on in the world. Many, many have gone before you believing on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. Many of them have gone on to glory and they're waiting. And right now, right now they're pleading with the Lord. They're making intercession to the Lord for the souls of the lost in the world who need to know Jesus. After Jesus was died, after Jesus died and was buried, He was raised again on the third day. And then the last line of the hymn says, He was taken up in glory. See, He's there. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And what He's saying to you is, if you will put your faith in Him, put your trust in Him, He will save you. So I want to invite you to do that right now. I'm going to pray a prayer, and this is your opportunity. You just pray the prayer with me. If you want to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, say, Dear Lord Jesus, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I believe the words that we read earlier that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I deserve the penalty for what I've done. But I believe that You died on the cross for my sin. You paid the price that I could not pay. I believe that You were raised again on the third day and that You are alive today. And that all authority belongs to You. So I confess my sin. I ask You to forgive me. Come into my heart and make me a new person today. Give me eternal life. Just like You promised. Give me a home in heaven with You. So that when I die, I may be with You forever. Thank You for saving me. I'll spend the rest of my life loving You and serving You now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you stand with me? We're going to sing our hymn of invitation. This is your opportunity. If you've made the decision to trust Jesus today as your Savior, this is your opportunity to share that with us. If you're looking for a place to serve, and you know that Myrtle Grove Baptist Church is the place God is calling you to join the saints. You come. If you need prayer, our prayer counselors will be coming to the altar. Pray with one of them. Pray by yourself at the altar or there in your pew. If you take this time to spend it with the Lord, let us sing together.